to the show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no, I, it's, first of all, congratulations on the little language learning empire that you have built. I've really enjoyed watching what you have, have grown since we first chatted at, at, the NFB convention in 2015. It's, it's oh, extremely impressive. And I appreciate the opportunity to sit and reflect on my own language learning journey. There's even more story there than than I had really given credit to myself for. So yeah, thank I you. Oh, you're welcome. I have not. It's kind of hard to get enough blind people to sit down and talk. And <laughs> most of most of them have podcasts. And it's all revolved around life as a totally blind person, and then they talk about the technology, and that's all you hear. Or they talk (laughs) about music, and that's all they hear. And I'm just like, wait a minute. There are other blind people out there in the world that do other things. (laughs) So, so, and because I'm in the language learning space, and I'm the only VI person in the space that is being known to like the sighted polyglot community, which I mean they've been totally cool. But okay. it's kind of hard when you have a group of people where they use their eyeballs for everything. You only got one eyeball to use <laughs> and they don't get some of them don't get it, but some of them do get it, but some of them that don't get it they're still ignorant to the fact that, you know, it's yeah. Well, how do you learn all this? Well, by year. <laughs> you know, how did you learn it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, 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 it is, it's, you know, I think sometimes people make a big deal about what we do. And it, it what we do, we don't look at it the same way. We just see ourselves doing it in the way that we feel comfortable doing whatever that is. You know, we might have to have some workarounds. But it's not the same because, you know, like I tell people, I'm not total, I'm partial, so mm-hmm. I can't relate to my totally blind friends because I'm not total. Right. You know, one side of my body, I can't see anything. The other side of my body, I can. I just can't see, like, further than five feet in front of me distance-wise. So yeah. what they see at 500 feet, I see at five. Well, not only is the work that you're doing to sort of push down the walls of the box, the blind box, um, not only is that work really important, pushing yourself into mainstream spaces, but also I think the point that you're making here is that, you know, blindness is often perceived as a binary condition by most of the able-bodied public, and that couldn't be further from the truth. There are right. many, many different ways that people are blind and, and that they experience blindness. And making the point that, you know, blindness is not binary. Like, it's not like you either see or you don't. There's a lot of gray areas in between. And, you know, coming to understand that might lead, I hope, to getting fewer comments in public spaces like, you're not blind, you can see. <laughs> oh, I see that every day. And I live, yeah. I live in an environment where you have a lot of older people. Mm-hmm. And... You know, they have their, their disabilities. Now, I'm watching these people with their walkers and their canes and and, and their, their power scooters and their regular wheelchairs. And they, they be getting around, you know. But at the same time, too, you know, I have empathy for these people. But then, 
there's parts of me that don't have empathy because it's like you want someone to feel empathy for you because you have a physical issue going on and it's due to, you know, older age or you might have a mass or, mm-hmm. you know, or whatever the situation is. But when it comes down to a, a, a disability where it affects your sight, you want to act all weird and <laughs> freak out. And if you have a dog, well, you're total. No, you can be legally no. blind and have a dog. Um, well, oh, you use a cane. You're total. No, uh-huh. I'm not no. total. I'm, <laughs> and, and it's in, in like someone said, well, why don't you just tell them you're blind and just get it over with? I was like, because that's false advertising. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not, I'm not 100%. My vision is impaired. I cannot read 12 size font anymore. I actually, medically, I'm not allowed to read print at all anymore. So, yeah, like. The- I, it, I find it helpful. It, it helps drive the point home, I think, when you frame it in a way that, depending on how you define disability, all of us every right. last one of us is going to experience disability either temporarily or later in life when you consider that pregnancy is considered a form of disability and aging is certainly uh, has, has all kinds of disabling components involved in it. And when you start phrasing, you know, or maybe you suffer a severe injury and you can't walk, you've got a broken leg and you can't walk for six or eight weeks. That is a disability. It's a temporary disability. And when you start framing it that way, I, I feel that it gives people pause to reconsider their perception of, of disability right. and disabled people. Um, and in a, in a parallel vein, in the context of the language learning thing, it's been a really interesting thing also for me to reflect on my language learning modalities and how they've changed. I, as a young adult, I passed for sighted and I was not using any kind of accommodations and I didn't know anything about the blind community or, you know, adaptive devices. And there certainly weren't nearly as many um, at that time. Right. Um, but looking back at it, I went from, you know, passing for sighted and trying to do things the same as my sighted peers. Um, and as my attitude about my disability changed over the years and as technology changed, my ability to access information was enhanced and and how I learned language has changed dramatically over the right. years, which has been kind of a fascinating um, evolution to think about. Yeah, especially because five years ago when I entered the polyglot world, I didn't know what the heck a polyglot was. All I knew was that I wanted to learn Russian, and I didn't care how I had to do it. It was going to happen. There you go. But but when you don't have resources, and I Mm -hmm. tell this to everybody, you don't have resources. I didn't have a Braille display that was powerful like the one I have now. Um, I didn't have e-books at my disposal in the language, in the, you know, particular book I wanted. Um, I didn't have access to audio like I do now. They didn't have mm-hmm. rail tables, you know. Right. There was a lot of things that weren't around five years ago that are around now, and thank God for Apple. But, <laughs> but Yay, it, for accessibility right out of the box. Right. Um, however, you know, like I tell people, I said, I had to find workarounds to be able to read scripts such as Arabic, or Mandarin or Cantonese or whatever, mm-hmm. you now you can download the Braille table, and I had to explain what that was, and then you had to download the wireless keyboard, which, you know, 
digital and then you had to go to speech and, and verbosity. You had to download the voice for the particular language. And then you had to go to the books folder where the book was in that language. And then you would go counterclockwise to, to language and then go to that language and then go to words. And then you can read it. <laughs> so once you finish doing all that, you know, I explained that to a few people I interviewed, and it was like, that's amazing. I, I wouldn't have even thought about that. I was like, yeah, could you imagine if you had to go through that much effort to open a book and read it? <laughs> what would that be like? Right. I mean, because if you just do voiceover and it's in Arabic and you didn't download the table and you didn't download the voice, you're screwed. Yeah. <laughs> because it's not going to read it correctly. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, and I'm, I, I thank Apple tremendously for their contribution to making accessibility um, number one priority. Um, I mean, because I can actually read in Tibetan, and I don't even know Tibetan. <laughs> you know, so. <laughs> right. I mean, they have every language now. And as long as your braille display can pick it up, you'll be yep. able to read it, yep. you know, which is great. You know, but that's also if you have a braille display, because not everyone has that. So you're kind of screwed if you don't have a braille display, but you're kind of not screwed if it's an ebook, because at least you can read that file by doing it with the free software that is available inside the phone. Mm-hmm. But if they didn't have that, they would be screwed. You know, and that, and that, I see that worldwide, like, there's not enough attention to, you know, literacy for people that are blind and, and visually impaired and, you know, and then people assume that because you're, you're blind and visually impaired, you automatically know Braille, which isn't even the case. That is um, absolutely true. And we've got the Marrakesh Treaty now, so now it's a matter of compliance and accountability. Uh, and here's, here's hoping that that'll open up access to electronic text worldwide oh yeah because i i have so many languages on my bucket list of okay i need to tap into this language i like uh, it now i need to i want to be able to read stuff from their country like finland like iceland um sweden for instance yeah um people in the middle east uh, countries where they speak swahili yeah so i mean yeah I mean, it's not like it's German or Portuguese or Spanish or French or much more uh, mainstream, uh, uh, widely right, available right. resources. Mm-hmm. Right, and and now it's gotten to the point where, with with language, you don't necessarily need to buy. You know, people are like, I, I remember Rosetta Stone. I remember when they came out with Rosetta Stone, and it it was too expensive and, and it was too visual. And exactly. There was 25 to 50% of Rosetta stone. That was great. If you had functioning eyeballs, but that was a, a if you're going to sink that much money into a language learning system, you want to take full advantage of it. Right. I, right. I remember being intrigued by Rosetta stone and very quickly moving on. <laughs> now I'm just curious, like when you have learned, um, your languages, what, what what did you use to to learn them? I mean, did, did you do an Aussie mail or did you do a teach yourself or a colloquial language book or a Michelle Thomas or Pimsler or whatever? Yeah. So this is this is the whole this is my journey, right? I, uh, Serena's language learning journey. 
there's, as I said, an evolution. Um, so I, I started studying my first foreign language back in 1988. Uh, that was when I entered eighth grade. Uh, and the public school system, of course, at that time was very Western centric, very Eurocentric. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my options were Spanish, French and German. Uh, and I just I didn't my dad studied a bit of German and my maternal grandmother grew up in a German speaking household. I didn't have a strong interest in French or Spanish. Um, and so German seemed like a very natural choice. And and over the years, I've studied more languages than I can almost keep track of. But German and later Japanese probably are my two strongest, the ones that I spent the most time studying most intensively and, and actually indeed got to spend some time in country um, to different degrees. So first foreign language, German. Uh, I, I took it in middle school. I continued taking it through high school and I continued taking it for several semesters, like three semesters, I think, in community college. Uh, and I did eventually go on to do a work abroad um, a program at a kind of a Disneyland knockoff um, in Cologne, uh, Germany, where I got to really dig into those, those foreign language skills. So that was all kind of, for the most part, me passing for sighted. And I was around, I would say, uh, maybe around my community college days. Uh, is when I got to be really good friends with the photocopier. So that was my early, an early adaptation um, was using the photo photocopier to copy everything and enlarge it. And in fact, my first job out of high school was at a Kinko's. So I got to know how to use a photocopier like a pro and I could make it do a lot of really cool things. So just making larger print of all the materials that I needed um, was my first personal accommodation. Um, I also, at the time, I happened to be dating somebody who was a machinist, and he worked for a private businessman who built video camera systems for agricultural research, really fancy, like $10,000 video camera systems that you sink into the ground so that you can observe soil conditions and root growth and things like they sell the universities and stuff. Uh, and his boss one day handed me a magnifying glass out of an old camera and handed me a lens and said, do you think this would be useful? <laughs> and that was my introduction to the world of magnification. And dang it, if I didn't start using that magnif- that little camera lens as a magnifier to access my schoolwork, actually, I, I had no idea that there were any such thing as disabled student services or that I even needed them. Mm-hmm. Um, it, was a, it was a long, very long journey. So... Uh, my little magnifying glass slash camera lens and, and enlarging print and so forth. I, I did that as an accommodation for a long time. I did eventually connect with the Disabled Student Services Office, um, and I started getting exposed to the world of CCTVs. Uh, I did finally connect with the Department of Rehabilitation somewhere around that time, um, and they hooked me up with a home computer connected to the, the brand new fancy Internet, which was relatively new in those days. Uh, I got a nice big CCTV for my desk at home and, and uh, Zoom text on my computer. So that was my, my early introduction to accommodations and adaptations to compensate for all the stuff I couldn't see um, in my language learning and, and beyond all my other academic studies. Um, Japanese was an interesting one. Um, I, I, of course, was doing that visually, and it, it was a lot of work. I look back on that now, and I think God would have. Like, I could have used my time a lot more efficiently if I had been Braille literate. That is for certain. Um, that Braille didn't come until much later. 
So I actually got all the way through graduate school using low vision devices and accommodations. And I will say, you know, I, I spent many years in community college. I was the first in my family to go to college and I didn't really have role models. I was kind of figuring everything out along the mm-hmm. way as I went. Um, and so I spent many years in community college, um, significantly because I liked learning, but also because I didn't have a clear academic target. Mm -hmm. Um, And I did develop one over the years. I decided that I wanted to work abroad, uh, wanted to travel, and I wanted to do good things for people. That was my first um, entry into defining a clear career path of sorts. And I knew that to be competitively employed in the field of international development or working abroad, I would probably need a master's degree. I hardly knew what one was at the time, but I knew I needed one. So uh, I did finally graduate from Santa Barbara City College. I studied international studies. Uh, I went on to UC Santa Barbara, uh, where I majored in, I double majored in linguistics and global studies. Of course, when you tell people that you majored in linguistics, they say, how many languages do you speak? And well, I mean, most people who study linguistics do speak at least one foreign language, but linguistics is a lot more than just speaking a foreign language. It's kind of you know, being able to deconstruct and decode um, all languages with, you know, even if you don't have a strong familiarity, you could still look at it and pick apart the patterns and see how it's built, um, right. getting under the under the hood of languages. So uh, did my undergraduate at UC Santa Barbara, um, linguistics and global studies, and I ended up at the Monterey Institute of International Studies, which is now rebranded as the Middlebury Institute. That happened right around the time that I graduated. And it was not until my very last semester of graduate school that I actually learned to properly touch type, which was probably one of the most liberating things I had ever done for myself. Um, And I was just getting connected to a wider range of blind people. Uh, I didn't have a lot of connection to blind people, and it was applying for scholarships through the National Federation of the Blind that got me hooked into the world of consumer agencies um, or organizations, I should say. Uh, So then I started getting to know a lot more, a lot more blind people, and I started seeing that some of these people who often were completely blind were doing way more than I was. (laughs) Oh, I was always, you know, doing way more than my sighted friends and family put together. I was going to college. I was traveling around the world. So I always figured I was doing just fine. Um, And relatively speaking, you could say that I was. But when I started to meet a lot of really accomplished and successful blind people, people who were totally blind, I realized that I I really had a lot more to learn. Uh, I knew that there were a lot of skills that I could benefit from, like learning how to use a long white cane and, and getting some braille skills under my belt. Um, so probably like 14 years of college got me to graduate school. Uh, and I was still using low vision and magnification, which, you know, is useful here and there. But for it to be my entire foundation was leading mostly to you know, neck aches and back aches and, and headaches and, and a lot of exhaustion right. and fatigue that are averted by using some alternative skills and saving your usable vision for stuff that it's truly usable for. Right. Um, so it was around that time I finished graduate school. 
Uh, and I, I went and did a nine-month training at the Louisiana Center for the Blind, and I got cane travel skills, and I got Braille skills, and I really did a full immersion in, you know, learning to do things without my usable vision, so that when I was doing things, my usable vision is kind of a bonus. It's an extra tool, but it's not my my primary source of information. Um, and that really changed the game in the context of my language learning abilities. Um, so let's see. Started with German in eighth grade all the way through community college. And by the time I got to community college, I started turning an eye towards Asia. Um, I grew up in Orange County for a number of years, which has a huge expatriate Asian community um, of all all var variations, right? There are Korean communities, Chinese communities, Southeast Asians, um, right. Laotian, Cambodian. Um, and and it was it left a really deep impression on me. And I started and Japanese was offered at my community college. And, and it seemed to me the most sort of alluring and beautiful of the Asian languages. Um, so I started taking Japanese uh, in community college. Uh, I would eventually do that work abroad in Germany, um, which resulted in a side trip to Indonesia. Um, and I returned to Indonesia on a couple of different occasions, and I, I did a homestay with a family. So I was picking up bits and pieces of Bahasa Indonesia. Um, when I moved to Monterey to go to graduate school, uh, I had to enroll at the local community college for a, a an economics prerequisite that I needed. And so I figured since I was there, I would also do some some cheap language, and I took a couple semesters of Arabic. Um, for a hot minute, I, I uh, checked out Esperanto. Um, and by the time I got to graduate school, I had a starter husband uh, who was Korean, and he was also a Spanish translation and interpretation student. So by proxy, I was picking up a fair amount of Korean. Uh, most of it was not socially appropriate, I will say that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, and and he also had taught himself fluent Italian and Portuguese. Um, having grown up in California and, and watched Sesame Street as a kid, Spanish is really, it's always sort of been in the background. And while I don't speak Spanish, um, it, 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 there's an understanding there, right? Like I've just kind of grown up immersed around it. It's a perfectly normal part of my everyday reality, even though I don't speak it. So spending all that time around the Spanish translation and interpretation students kind of ramped that up a little bit. Um, gosh. Um, so there were, there were a lot of, you know, and when I was traveling around Europe, that, that summer job I did in Germany, I, I traveled the rails, I rode the rails backpacking around Europe and I would try to pick up various um, phrases and polite expressions wherever I was just as a, a basic gateway um, I picked up a tiny bit of Vietnamese. I did a study abroad program in China and Vietnam, so I added Chinese to the mix um, when I was in community college. Uh, Vietnamese, not so much, but it was there. And, and primarily, I would be using tapes. I would just check tapes and CDs out from the library. You could do, get them for free. Um, and it was an audio modality, uh, so I could turn it on into housework uh, or, you know, whatever. Uh, and just sort of immerse myself in the language. Um, so I was I was checking out all kinds of, of language cassettes and CDs. They still had cassettes back in those days. Um, from the local library. It's a free resource, right? Um, 
Now, of course, we get more recent in my language learning history. Uh, of course, one of the reasons that you connected with me was I had just returned from a term of service in the Peace Corps. I served uh, a year and a half in the Kyrgyz Republic. Um, so in preparation for my Peace Corps service, of course, I was um, assigned to learn the Kyrgyz language. Uh, most of us were. There were 55 people in my staging group, and only six people actually were assigned Russian. Um, on a practical level, Russian would have been more appropriate for me since I was living and working in the capital, which is primarily Russian-speaking. Um, however, one of the major components of the Peace Corps is that cultural exchange, and, and the local national language is a really important part of that cultural exchange. So I learned primarily Kyrgyz, which made me a complete anomaly in Bishkek. <laughs> uh, and before I departed for service, this was, this was the first time in my life that I traveled internationally with my long white cane. And this was the first time in my life that I learned a foreign language using Braille. So that my, my modalities like covered the whole spectrum at this point from beginning to, to now. Um, and that was a, that was a huge accomplishment for me. So before I left for service, I, I, of course, I got the Pinsler. I really came to like Pinsler. I sampled it from the local libraries in years past. And I liked it because it was designed to be audio only. So I didn't have to worry about the accompanying pamphlets of, you know, vocabulary words that I couldn't read or grammar guides or whatever. Just right. plug it in and listen. This is what it's made to do, um, which I really loved Pimsleur for. So I got the, I got the Pimsleur Russian before I left for the Peace Corps. But as you can imagine, Kyrgyz is a minority language and there's just almost no language resources available in this language. Uh, before I left, Peace Corps sent me a few audio files that had actually been made by previous volunteers. Um, and of course, there's nothing like actually just living and working in country to sharpen your language skills. Um, so that was significantly my gateway to Kyrgyz. Peace Corps, of course, provided a lot of language training once I got there. And then by virtue of living and working there, I got to exercise those skills a whole lot. But before I left, uh, I sat down, I went to Wikipedia, and the you could look up just about any Braille code. And this was relatively new in terms of accessibility to foreign language Braille codes. Oh, yeah. Um, they have the little JPEG images, and the JPEG images were conveniently labeled with the dot pattern. <laughs> so sighted people could go look up foreign Braille codes and, and look at it and say, oh, look, that's really neat. But I could actually, you know, get the dot pattern by virtue of the label on the JPEG. So I sat down with the Wikipedia page for both Russian and Kyrgyz and I hand transcribed on my Perkins Brailler and I took those with me and I actually taught myself both the Russian and the Kyrgyz Braille codes on the flight from Istanbul to Bishkek on the way there. I, I broke them out and I read them over several times and I got out my full page slate and just practiced transcribing. And by the time we got to Bishkek, I had most of the code down. Now, it's helpful that there is a lot of crossover between English Braille and the Russian and Kyrgyz Braille code. So it was right. not not a stupendous feat um, to learn. But that was basically it. You know, it's a couple hours from Istanbul to Bishkek and I got two new Braille codes under my belt. Um, so from there, it was just a matter of practicing and exercising. Wow. Um, yeah. I, I, 
you know, I could just imagine what it's like to to have to travel as a blind person internationally to a country that you've never been to before, teach yourself the Braille codes. And then I'm just curious, how were you received once you arrived there? Oh, dear. Well, <laughs> um, it was definitely a mixed bag. It's not unlike how we might be received in public spaces here. It was a little more on the extreme end of things. They're much less accustomed to blind people moving about independently. Um, but the, the response is similar, for sure. Um, I also had to push back with the Peace Corps themselves, which was a battle I was not expecting to have. Uh, so there there was some pushback there in terms of when I initially got there, they were really paranoid about me, you know, walking from my um, from my host family's house to the training site. There was, to be fair, an extremely dangerous road that I lived on one side of and the training um, building was on the other side and I had to cross that highway um, and there was no safe, no controlled intersections or safe place to really cross the street. You just kind of had to wait until there were no cars <laughs> and the cars moved really fast. Um, but once I, my, my host family was sending the 10 year old daughter to escort me and my, my Peace Corps language teachers were kind of following me, you know, offering to walk me home and I really had to push back and say, you know, you don't need to do this. It's I'm fine. It's okay. Like I know, I know the route and I'm good. I got skills. <laughs> um, so there was that. And they also, so kind of in the mixed bag category, because of my service there, they invited another blind volunteer the following year. Uh, I had a lot to do with that because I showed up and I did the job. Um, now, of course, they were coming to me with looking for recommendations on what to expect. And I said, I don't know anything about her. I don't know anything about her or her blindness skills or her attitude or her philosophy. Like, blind people are different. You're going to need to take, you know, talk to her. <laughs> um, she was assigned at a school for the blind. Uh, I was working also with a an up-and-coming training center. Mm -hmm. um, for blind people in Bishkek. Um, and it was part of how I had to kind of reverse engineer my assignment. Uh, when I applied and I was going through the process, it looked a lot to me like my application was going to languish if I didn't get proactive. And, and I, I did. I reached out to my network and I actually got connected with somebody in Bishkek who was working with blind people. This was before I had any sense of where I might go. Mm -hmm. um, and she advocated for me. She and, and her partner at that time went to the Peace Corps office in Bishkek and said, you know, we want this volunteer. Uh, so it, I really had to go above and beyond kind of what the average applicant had to go through in order to get my assignment. And there was a lot of the security officer. Um, when I first started having casual conversations with him, he said, oh, yeah, we had meetings about you. And I said, I'm not surprised. And it was the, the safety and security officer significantly had a lot to do with the Bishkek office accepting my application. Everybody in the room was skeptical and um, concerned about my ability to function safely. Uh, and, and he sat back and he said, I don't see why we can't. Like, I don't see why we wouldn't say yes. 
look at her resume. She clearly wants to do this. She's clearly prepared for it. She has experience X, Y, and Z. Um, I don't see anything here that says we shouldn't say yes. <laughs> and it was because the safety and security officer had that clarity of thought uh, that he persuaded the rest of his colleagues and they accepted my application. And I, I did receive that assignment. Um, so I kind of had to use the blind card to get my Peace Corps assignment in a way. Right. So that is, it is what it is. I, I did my Peace Corps service and it was a, an amazing experience for sure. And, and the fact that I helped open the door for another blind volunteer. Now they, she was an English teacher uh, mm-hmm. and they placed her at a school for the blind. And, and that's, you know, it's, it's got its pros and its cons. They, they brought in another blind volunteer uh, and they placed her, um, and that's a great thing. Um, but she right. she had no experience really working with blind people. She was blind herself. She had a lot of experience teaching English, and she taught her familiarity was primarily in, in able-bodied and mainstream circles. So working at a school for the blind was a weird transition for her, uh, and the Peace Corps office indicated that they just didn't think that especially people outside the Capitol would be ready <laughs> for a blind person working in their community. Um, oh, wow. So, you know, it's it's three steps forward and two steps back. Um, so, you know, there's there's that kind of systemic thing where I had to kind of push with the Peace Corps a little bit. And then there's just, you know, there was one day that I was wandering around Bishkek running errands and literally, you know, by the time I got anywhere close to finishing my errands and going back home, I had I had like half a dozen encounters with well-intended, you know, micromanaging members of the sighted public who were concerned for my safety. And I just I had a little meltdown on Facebook um, that I was done being an educator for the day. There were there were days I had on not one occasion, but two. And I think it might have been the same guy on different days. Um, somebody actually got out of their car, stopped at an intersection, got out of their car to help me cross the street and totally held up traffic. The light changed and his car was sitting there without him in it. And I'm trying to tell him, no, just get back in your car. Like, I'm fine. Go away. (laughs) Um, Oh, wow. A little more on the extreme end. And then, you know, on the other side of that coin, for a big portion of the time that I was there, I, I lived in my own apartment on the south side of the city. And one of the best bazaars in Bishkek was, you know, across the street from my apartment. And there was a very convenient, there was a trolley bus that dropped me on one side of the bazaar and I could navigate through the bazaar and pick things up on the way home, pick up groceries and so forth, and then just be plop at home. And I did this pretty regularly, and I, I was probably getting stares and curious glances. And I did one day here, overhear uh, a woman say, oh, "Her eyes are open." And I said, in in very fluent by then Kyrgyz, I said, "My ears are open too, and I speak Kyrgyz." <laughs> wow! <laughs> and those kinds of responses. Um, Word, you know, but for the most part, I would wander through the bazaar and I had all my favorite vendors who would just chat me up and it was a great way to practice my language skills. Um, and nobody really questioned, you know, my right to wander through the bazaar and buy groceries. And, and so in that sense, I was a perfectly normal sort of functioning citizen of, of Bishkek. Um, I did have a day on a on a trolley bus um, where a couple of older guys were 
like I could hear that they were talking about me. Of course, being Caucasian, everybody thought I spoke Russian, and there are lots of Russians um, who were born and raised in Kyrgyzstan and don't speak Kyrgyz. Um, so they they probably assumed I was Russian, and um, so they were talking about me in Kyrgyz, and I, I had the same reaction where it's like, yes, and I understand what you're saying. Uh, and of course, they were stunned, you know. Are you Russian? No. Are you Turkish? No, I'm American. And they were like, an American speaking Kyrgyz literally stood up and made an announcement to the entire trolley bus. She's American and she speaks Kyrgyz. It was like the happiest thing that had happened to them all day. Um, <laughs> it was it was really sweet. It was really sweet um, because most foreigners and he told me this, you know, most foreigners come to Kyrgyzstan and they speak Russian. And I was like, well, you know, that's not what the Peace Corps wants me to do. <laughs> like, why not speak? And I, I would overhear, you know, old older ladies um, chastising what were apparently their grandchildren, probably. Um, chastising their grandchildren for speaking Russian and not speaking Kyrgyz. It's it's a controversial part of the culture over there, right? Like the Kyrgyz Republic, um, one of the many former Soviet satellites, and they really kind of walk the line between the U.S. and Russia um, mm -hmm. in a way that a lot of the other former satellites don't. They have maintained strong relationships with both the United States and with Russia, um, which, of course, in today's Sociopolitical context is extremely awkward. Um, you yeah, know. pretty much. <laughs> we're uh, not on. We're not on good relations with a lot of people, right? Yeah, and in many of the other satellites, um, you know, Russian would be spoken in the capital, but once you go out into the the villages and so forth, you would hear local languages. In Kyrgyzstan, Russian was and still is the lingua franca throughout much of Kyrgyzstan and people who don't speak Russian are looked down upon as, as, you know, backwards and hillbillies. And it's only been in the last maybe decade or two that there's been a resurgence in, um, you know, national pride in speaking the Kyrgyz language. So it's, it's enjoying a little bit of a resurgence now, but that recovery from the post-Soviet era, um, I mean, a lot of people I know, they're, Russian is still the language of education, you know, far and right. away. And and I had, as a Kyrgyz speaker in Bishkek, um, I had a hard time doing things like ordering taxis and, and ordering pizza. <laughs> um, something that as simple as that that you take for granted um, because my Russian was really minimal. You know, by the time I got there, I, I could I could navigate like the bazaar. I could manage like a basic you know purchase acting for an item and and purchasing yeah um, but getting on the phone you know that's a that's a language skill in and of itself and I'll, I'll never forget ordering a pizza and naming all the items that I wanted on the pizza and they were like don't you just want a vegetarian and there was something about the question that I didn't understand and I had to ask them to repeat it like a hundred times and when I finally figured out they were asking me if I just wanted a vegetarian pizza I was like yes <laughs> yes Yes, I would love a vegetarian pizza. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, you know, I had a similar experience um, when I was, um, I had did six weeks of um, learning just the basics of Cantonese. So I did it on the Mango app, and it was my first Asian language. And I said, I'm going to do this. This is cool. I'm, I'm starting to get this. And my goal was to order some Chinese food over the phone to see if, you know, I can, I can, you know, I wouldn't have to speak English. 
Mm-hmm. And the the lady spoke Mandarin and she understood what I said in, in, in Cantonese. And I had asked for some barbecue beef bun. Well, what I neglected to realize was that they didn't sell barbecue beef bun. You had to go to Hong Kong to get barbecue beef bun. So uh, we had a great laugh about that. But she said, you know, keep speaking, that my Cantonese was good, even though I only learned it like six weeks ago. Ah, brilliant. Yeah, and, and she was really amazed that, you know, I was I was like, yeah, I'm visually impaired. Oh, you're blind. It was like, uh, partial. Okay, blah, blah. And she was like, your Cantonese is really good. I'm like, oh, keep going. I was like, oh, thank you. Yeah. Yay, that kind of encouragement is really means a lot. Oh, yeah, and I tell people, I tell my students that all the time, you know, they're so hell-bent on, I need to be perfect. Well, first of all, you don't have time to be perfect. <laughs> people want to know what you need help with now. Like, yeah. they don't care if your grammar sucks. I mean, yes, I have a strong vocabulary in Russian. My grammar sucks. <laughs> they still know what I'm talking about. Yeah. You know, yeah, I pizza. I want a pizza. <laughs> you know? Yeah, which, I mean, that's pretty much what you say when yeah. you're ordering food, you know? You know, or Yahachu um Vadu. Piva. Piva. Yeah. Yeah, that too. Beer. Mm. Yeah. But I always I, I always have to say like vino. You know? Yeah, <laughs> vino. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, you know, but it's or, you know, ensalada or um salad. Uh you know, and, and half the time I'm I'm like, you know, I won't Corita or Reba, Rebu or you know fish or chicken, you know or um, shashlik. No, I didn't do shashlik, but I did yeah. do I did do borscht and Olivier salad. Oh, the Olivier, Olivier, oh the salads, the salads. That was uh, one of the one of the perks of the the Russian era that still lingers in Kyrgyzstan is of course it's a it's a culture very centered around family Mm. and celebrations and feasting the food right and the first course at any party uh is usually a spread of just tons of different kinds of salads Olivier of course is always on the menu and they do you know a really mean cucumber tomato usually and uh but the salads are just exquisite (laughs) yeah I I may I I learned how to make it, and I took pictures of it and put it on Facebook, and I did yeah. board. And people are like, okay, so she doesn't eat eggs. She doesn't have to put the eggs in there. Like, people are having right. arguments about yeah, yeah. me not putting eggs in my book, in my uh, Olivia's oh, yeah. <laughs> And I I got so, people here were so happy that I would make it. Are you making that again? I'm like, yes. I And, like, I know that they do it on Nuvi Gordon, you know. Um, New Year's Eve, they do it. They they eat it in yeah. Russia on that day. But I got so addicted to it, I was making it every holiday. Nice. So so my friends come over for Easter. Oh, you made Olivia salad? Yeah. What else you make? This is what else I made. I mean, like I made it for um Labor Day this year, and I kind of did an international thing where I made some majetera. From the Middle East, uh, which is rice, onion, um, garlic, and then I put lentils in mine, and then mm. you put um, cumin, um, coriander, 
salt, pepper, and allspice. Yeah. And rice. Yeah. 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 So, so I made that, and then I have made uh, a semolina cake, and then I made some Olivier salad. And my that friends like quite a spread. My friends went nuts. And then yeah. I made the the cake that Prince William had for his wedding, the chocolate cake, the cookie Ooh. cake. Ooh. Uh, the, I, yeah, it was oh, it's a real easy recipe, and um. It don't take very much many ingredients, but I made that too, and I did a whole bunch of stuff. And they're like, "You can really cook," and I'm like, "What?" My whole thing is, I love food, so yeah. why not learn a couple dishes from each country that you're learning this particular language from? Yeah. And, and then I go out and I try my language skills out in a restaurant somewhere where they speak the language, and see if I can order food in the language and have a small conversation. And everybody's like. Well, don't you want to be fluent? I was like, guess what? If I can do the same stuff I do in English in my target language, that gives me more motivation to keep going as opposed to saying I want to be fluent because that's not an achievable goal. That's how you get fluent. Right, right. So (laughs) applied applied language. Right. So, you know, I've ordered food in Thai, Arabic, Cantonese, Russian, Spanish, English. Not French yet, not Turkish, Hindi, or Japanese yet. Yeah, yeah. So, but you got much to that Please do your best. Yeah, I, I, and I really do. I mean, I do enjoy the fact that, um, you know, when I when I cook the food and I take the pictures of the food after I'm done and. People, wow, you're a really good cook. Oh, my God, that looks so good. And I said, well, you know, I take my time with it. You know, yes, I have butchered stuff before. And, you know, I've taken pictures of stuff that I really messed up badly. (laughs) Just to show that it's not it's not always going to be perfect every time. But it it, it gives you an insight into the people and the culture of, of the country for which you're learning the language. I mean, I'm not just doing it. Yeah. Just because, you know, um, I just want to speak this language. I want to make it a part of my life. Well, so. I will say that my my relationship to language learning has, has drifted or been on hold a bit since I returned from the Peace Corps. Life definitely happens. It's relentless. Right. Uh, but I have, for the last several years, been engaging in a tradition that I, I got from Gretchen Rubin. I don't know if you follow her. She's kind of a happiness guru. Mm-hmm. Um, I've started a tradition at the end of the year. I set a number of items, uh, not necessarily resolutions because I actually kind of don't like resolu- New Year's resolutions. Um, but she calls it the, this year it would be the 20 for 2020. So I started it back in 2018. So the 18 for 2018, the 19. So you add one every year. So I've got a list of 20 things in 2020, um, that, I'd like to work on, that I'd like to accomplish, that I'd like to achieve. Uh, I'm not holding myself to the resolution standard um, Mm -hmm. because I feel like that puts a little more pressure and I'm less likely to follow through, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Of course, 2020 for all of us has turned everything on its head. So my list of 20 for 2020 is kind of a jumbled mixed bag of things that I am actually accomplishing and things that have completely changed in nature thanks to the ever-changing 
conditions of the year 2020. Uh, right. Number 17 on my list was to resurrect some of my language skills. And uh, since I've been away from language learning for a while, I'm, I'm watching your language learning journey uh, because otherwise I'm probably just going to pick up Pimsleur and maybe go back to Duolingo. I, I opened up Duolingo years ago and I tested out the German and I did a few lessons and it just sort of validated that my German is still pretty good. <laughs> I uh, tried. Duolingo German for one, Russian. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I just couldn't get into it. Yeah. So I'm I'm looking to you for uh, all your, your thoughts and your feedback on various modes of learning, because there's probably a lot of new stuff out there, even though I think Pimsleur is still pretty tried and true. Pimsleur? Um, I, I have to say, I had a love-hate relationship with Pimsleur. Yeah. It was too slow. Okay. I would fall asleep. Um... <laughs> So, and to me, it was like, I, I'm so picky about how I learn because, you know, I want to talk about certain topics. I don't want to feel mm -hmm. like I'm going on a tourist holiday. Aha. Uh -huh. And Pimsleur definitely does do that. Right. So I've done different things. Now I will say, because I use an iPhone and I have to tell people I don't use Windows anymore. So it's kind of, mm. you know, it's different for me, but. Um, because everything I have in my house is Apple. <laughs> um, I I felt that my my learning experience has changed a great deal. You know, um, I used to be able to read the stuff on the screen. Now I can no longer read it. Mm -hmm. So it's more audio, a lot more audio. Yep. And so, um, you know, I have to like reintegrate so many times, people. I don't know every Braille code in the world. I'm sorry. I can read in Russian, German, Dutch, Swedish, French, Italian, Romanian, Brazilian, Portuguese, Spanish. I can read in all those languages. But I cannot. You know, like, I don't know the alphabet all the way in Arabic yet. I plan on it, but, you know... I mostly do ebooks and I do audio. So my whole goal is I want to speak it. I, you know, the reading and writing aspect of it doesn't interest me at the moment. I feel like that'll come later. Once I become highly proficient with the language, I'll be able to read and write. Because if I know the alphabet and I know the numbers and all that type of stuff, it, it'll all click in. You know, mm -hmm. as opposed to, okay, I need to know. I, I work on the pronunciation. I work on speaking. I work on the listening comprehension in real speed, not slow speed. So for me, it's a little bit different. Um, I do use Memorize app. Um, ah. I use that because it's free. Yeah. I did free one free anyway. And then I use Mango. Um, that's free because you can do it with your library subscription. Um, Colloquial Languages, you can go on there and download all their audio. Or whatever language you want, free. Um, and because I'm doing affiliate marketing with Michelle Thomas, I pretty much have all their languages. And nice. my diploma. Yeah. So I'm 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 dabbling in languages I wouldn't have never dabbled in in my life because I need to review them for the show and for the company. And I'm going to be working with them for another year on that. Um. So I I mostly do an immersion. Um, type of method 
where I'll use Michelle Thomas, like the foundation course, which is like your first two years of a semester of college in whatever language. And then I'll do like the first, I don't know, three and a half hours, four hours straight. Mm. And then I'll take a break for like an hour. And then I'll come back to the rest of it and finish it. And then I'll throw up a video of me speaking in that language, however uh. much information I have that I've, I've extrapolated from all that. Mm-hmm. And then I want to find out from people what, you know, does this, is this okay? What do I need to work on? You know, mm-hmm. that's how I get feedback. And then I'll go and I'll use Mango. And I will go and download the same language and I will go and compare the two different courses to see how much I actually retain from the first course. You know, and um, I'll do it that way. But yeah, I do immersion. I do a yeah. lot of a lot of speaking and I will I will find subjects I want to talk about and I will learn that and then I will speak. Even if I mess mess up, I still continue going. I talk to myself. Um, I used to do language exchanges, but I don't anymore. Um, mm-hmm. Mainly because they want to do a lot of writing. I want to speak. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the groups on WhatsApp, it's mostly them writing in the language. And I'm like, dude, I thought we were going to speak. <laughs> I don't want to read what you're saying. I yeah. I want to speak. So I, I pretty much do that. And, um, you know, people... You know, you got people that's going to understand where you're coming from. And then you got people that, you know, they're just really ignorant. And um, I mean, I've actually had people I've interviewed where one person came on and they were just so rude. After it was over with, I posted the interview. But it, I was having conditions where the Internet kept dropping so much. Mm. during the inter- And I had no control over that. Right. And the person the person must have had a a different disability than me because they thought we were on the phone for hours. We were only phone for 32 minutes. Ah. And well, so, yeah. Speaking I, of, I do need to bounce off to my next Zoom meeting. Zoom fatigue is definitely a good thing, but this has been absolutely delightful, Chanel. Thank you again for, for giving me this opportunity. It's been oh, you're really welcome. neat to reflect and review on my language learning process and, and recommit to that number 17 on my 20 for 2020. Um, I blog mostly about food and happiness at it starts with quiche.wordpress.com. Um, so if anybody wants to follow up with me, I'd be, I'd be happy to hear some feedback there. Um, and so that the whole world knows how to spell quiche, it's Q-U-I-C-H-E. I have gotten some feedback that people don't know how to spell quiche. So it starts with quiche.wordpress.com. Uh, mostly food and happiness, um, but a language conversation is inevitable since this is uh, this is on my 20 for 2020. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it because I... I don't get to interview that many people in the blind community talking about their language learning journey mm-hmm. it's because everybody's on the whole tech thing. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, and now I have to go because I have a yellow Labrador retriever that's looking at me like I want to eat. Oh, feed Bono. Yes. <laughs> All right, Chanel, take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>